Recording started. This episode has been in the making for months. I think it actually is months. Uh, I'm pumped for this one. Uh, everyone hears me say that I'm pumped for episodes, but this one is uh, is one that we've been planning for some time. So I'm very excited to announce the guest shortly, but uh, it wouldn't be a dark mode episode in this era without the start of a, uh, a dad joke. This one's less of a joke, more about uh, something that's going to trip you up for the rest of your day as you're listening to this. So I want to get uh, your reaction to this one, Gabe. If, uh, if you say the word Mercedes in your head, it is one of the only words where every E is pronounced differently. Have a think about uh, that. Mercedes. There you go. A bit of cerebral leaking in cars or on earpods as the as you're doing the walk listening to the podcast today. So definitely quick shout out. Uh, it is heading towards the end of uh, the calendar year. If you do celebrate Christmas, happy Christmas, Merry uh, New Year. Uh, I know I got them backwards, but that's dyslexia kicking in. Um, very thankful for the audience uh, and your participation over the last calendar year, but we will have a recap episode to come. Um, I did want to introduce our guest because I feel like this episode could go forever because we've just got so much to talk about, but I'd really like to just quickly welcome Dirk Hodgson to the podcast for this episode before I introduce you, Dirk. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Allow me just quickly to run through a brief introduction, Dirk. I, uh, I hope I've got some of these correct, but Dirk Hodgson is the former director of cybersecurity at NTT. He has more than two decades of history in the technology, cybersecurity, and intelligence industries. He has deep expertise in a wide variety of regulatory compliance best practice frameworks, backed by the requisite technical depth to be able to cut through the noise and recommend the right cyber solution to the C-suite when it matters. He is, don't hold this against him, a former Air Force intelligence officer and works within the bounds of the agency for many moons. I couldn't let you slide that one. But he's most recently founded and launched his very own venture, Cognitio Digital, to focus on bringing the keys to digital transformation using tools like AI, digital twins, and plenty more, which we'll discuss today. Dirk Hodgson, welcome to Dark Road. Hey, Ben. Hey, Gabe. It's so awesome to be here. And look, because that dad joke wasn't real great, it was very cerebral. It wasn't much of a laughing one, though. <laughs> I'm going to get throw something out there for all of those ex-military type now. You're telling me that I'm ex-Air Force. You guys are obviously ex-Army, but I notice your colors are very joint in the background. Huh? All right. Color well picked up. That is, well picked yep. up, yeah. That is We're very inclusive, Dirk. Indeed, indeed, indeed. I thought you were going to throw out the pongos. For, for those that aren't military, Air Force and Navy call Army people pongos because they pong whenever they enter an aircraft or a Navy vessel. I thought that was coming for sure. Look, there's so many things that could have been said right now, Ben, but I love your what a digital twin um, pseudonym here for today, though, Ben. It's, it's really appropriate. Well, firstly, Dirk, congratulations on Kodisha Digital. I think that's uh, it's a massive thing to jump out of uh, working for the behemoth that is NTT. You did such a good stint there, and uh, and you've made many organizations' lives easier with the work you've done there. But stepping out into your own venture with Kodisha Digital, yeah. how does it feel? Feels great, Ben. It's, um, you know, I guess even before NTT, right? Like that was the, the last four years of my life, but my entire professional career has been in really big organizations, right? Defense to begin with, you know, 100,000 people. Then Accenture after that, it was 200,000 when I started. It's about 700,000 or so. And then about 300 and something thousand at NTT. 
So to go from all of that into an organization that is currently four people, um, quite a change. And there's some things that, you know, perhaps I always took for granted from other people supporting you in your, your day job, in your business. And now you have to do things like you know, raise your own invoices, generate your own quotes, do a lot of your own research for podcasts, all of these fun things. Speaking of research for podcasts, Gabe, I'm interested. I know that one of the topics we're going to talk to, and it's, uh, it's definitely not in my title, um, is digital twins. Before we step into what that is, Gabe, do you have a, a breakdown of what digital twin is? Or I know that we talk about digital twin in our, uh, in our lives quite often. Um, keen on your thoughts before we get the, the expert here's uh, idea or concept of what a digital twin is. Yeah. Amazing. We can give a stab at the definition and then get the expert to swoop in with, um, with the goods and for sure. But yeah, I think like Dirk said, offline just before jumping onto the podcast, you know, digital twins, not necessarily a new concept, but not widely understood by the same token. So certainly my understanding is really that technological replication of an environment and for the purpose of different things. So you might want to understand things like forecasting or, you know, expansion planning in a cyber context for all of us as practitioners, where are the vulnerabilities and so on. But the thing that's most interesting for me and absolutely love to pass the mic over to Dirk after this is with the age of AI and also the speed, scale and sophistication of adversarial actors, how do those two things implicate, are having bigger implications now on digital twins? So lo and behold, here's the foray into the deep dive into the topic today. And I'd love to know the perspective, Dirk, of yourself. How did I go there with the definition? Oh, look, Gabe, I think that was, was excellent. And you know, the key thing about any new technology, and you know, you did mention that this has been around for a while, but I'll come back to that. The key thing about any new technology is that generally speaking, definitions are really hard because changing so quickly, right? So what was a digital twin five years ago is very different to what is a digital twin today. I'm, you know, just to put this into perspective, the first kind of publicly known about digital twin that you can read about is from NASA back in 2010. Um, so we're talking about something that's nearly 15 years old in, in practice now. It's been around for a bit longer than that in, in theory, quite a bit longer than that in theory. But in 2010, NASA publicly stated that they were using digital twins to simulate spacecraft. Um, so, you know, rather than having to create multiple versions, physical models of these really, really expensive things, they were able to use digital technologies to do that. But if you, if you rewind your mind back to uh, 2010, the iPhone had only been out for three years. Yeah. The idea of the cloud was still pretty new, right? Like there was the Xbox cloud, there was the PlayStation cloud, AWS, it, yeah, it, it was a very new idea. Azure and uh, Google cloud platform really kind of were only coming into their own as well. So if back then, Digital twin was, I think, exactly what you described there. It's a modeling technique to say, here's what we can uh, build. Here's what we can, here's what will happen if something is changed within a system. And to be honest, it stayed that way for quite some time. Even when you get up to 2018, 2019, 2020, most examples of digital twins were in manufacturing. And it was manufacturers like uh, Rockwell, like Siemens, like GE, who would release a digital twin with the product that they were building. And let's say, when you want to simulate things, when you want to change something, test it on this thing first. Um, so really just a model. 
with cloud, with AI, things have changed dramatically. There's so much more data out there and we can get data into one place so much easier than we ever could before. So these days, digital twins very much can be used to simulate pretty much anything with pretty much any type of data. Some examples we'll talk about a little bit later include manufacturing IoT data, so industrial IoT data, all the way through to data coming off the back of an ERP platform, all in the same model. But what, what makes twins particularly powerful these days is not only that you can bring all of that data in, but once you've simulated it in an automated way because of the connectivity of, of systems these days, you can actually feed that back into the core system. So you're connecting the physical world and the digital world quite literally by a digital thread. So you go, hey, I'm going to change something because I want my spacecraft to perform a little bit differently. Bad example. You can actually hit a button inside the twin to say, write that back into the core system and actually make this change into the ERP, into the configuration, into whatever it ha happens to be, which opens up a whole new world of possibilities, right? We can have any data that we want and we can actually simulate in real time and make decisions and implement them in real time as well. How hard is it to actually create a digital twin, Dirk? Great question. And, you know, it's the old technology answer or, you know, back in the day, the old intelligence answer of it depends. Uh, you know, there, there are, there are examples of digital twins that are literally high powered spreadsheets um, all the way through to really industrial grade, enterprise grade systems that are built in, they're connected to hundreds of data sources. And as I said, they're actually writing back. So they've got inherent business processes built into them. The spreadsheets clearly don't take a long period of time to technically build, but to actually identify the data sources and, and understand the, the information well enough to build a model, that could still take a little bit of time. Once you get into, I guess, the, the complicated, um, I guess, more accurate models, the models that we're using these days, yeah, they take a little while to understand the data and build, build the use case. But the key is that they need to be fed and water. They need to be kept alive into the future, right? So it's almost not a matter of how long it takes. It's almost a matter of how much you continually maintain it so that you can draw the value out of it as well. Speaking of value, Dirk, I've heard a few uh, customers over the years talk about digital twin and the fact they'd love a digital twin, but the cost can blow out. Uh, when you look at, you know, license double ups, you look at the infrastructure support. Yeah. Um, how do you objection handle uh, some of those comments that uh, organizations are facing? Yeah. Cost and value are two, they're two really different things, right, Ben? Now, we bring them together when we start to talk about return on investment. But we've got to keep the conversation separate to begin with. So, you know, let's come back to what it costs to build one of these in a little while. But you think about the value that you get off the back of one. Um, if we think about our, our background, and we'll go for Navy here for a second, because I know you're both Brett <laughs> Army and I'm Air Force. One of the examples <laughs> of digital twins is in shipbuilding and in ship maintenance. Um, so you think of the new frigate that British Aerospace or BAE is delivering to Australia, the Hunter class. Frigates, there's actually a digital twin that goes alongside that. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's say you wanted to simulate what happens when a missile hits the side of a frigate and what you might need to replace and so on and so forth. You really can't do that in practice, right? Like the cost of building a frigate to go and put a missile into the side of it, nobody is actually going to do that simulation 
Whereas if you've got a digital twin and you've got real data and you're able to actually build this out and simulate what will happen, suddenly you're able to extract value that literally would up, would never otherwise be there. Um, so I think, you know, the key is, is it's not so much again, how much it costs to build them. It's what you can get off the back of having a, a functional digital twin. And really that's down to the organization, right? Like if they see the, if they see the vision, they see the value and they continually try to extract that value out of it. Industry says, statistics say everything, the, the way the industry is growing says it, the return on investment speaks for itself at that point. Well, Jack, if we follow the military theme, and of course, as a former combat engineer, you just spoke about building something and blowing it up. So at this point, I've lost my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't we do it in the physical realm? <laughs> <laughs> Only a combat engineer would say that, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll blow in place. I think that's a, that's a key point there, Dirk, you mentioned is, um, is, is separating the, the value chain, the value chain far exceeds the cost, but you need to understand the value chain before you look at the cost, because if you go for cost first, you're always going to get that sticker shock, right? So um, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, you mentioned, uh, the frigate class, if we can just bring it into some more real world examples for, for the audience, I think that would yeah. help understand, you know, the value piece of it, right? So. If we look at uh, finance sector or we look at banking, yeah. I know the digital twins are huge in, in that sector. Um, what are some of the common use cases that that that, that fi the finance sector, uh, the, the banking sector yeah. use uh, digital twins for? Yeah. Good point, Ben. We shouldn't nerd out too much about blowing frigates up. Um, you know, it's just probably not for everybody, right? Yeah. But look, you mentioned banking and I'll, I'll give you an example in banking in a second, but really the, the key here is these days with the, the complexity and the power of the platforms and the data sources, you can twin just about anything. Um, there's an example out of European Union called the NeuroTwin project, where they are literally trying to twin a human brain so they can conduct research on a digital twin of a human brain. So you, you think about that and you say, if that's the kind of the, the level that it can get to, anything before that starts to sound a little bit easier right, at that point. Specifically in banking, one of the things that's always been hard in banking, insurance, anything where money's changing hands is a little bit like cybersecurity. People try to co-opt it. People try to take information or take dollars out of that system. If you're trying to run a bank, right? You know, if you're trying to have ATMs, for example, somebody puts a, a their, their card in. I know this is a novel concept, getting cash out these days puts the card in, enters the pin, presses a button. They expect money to come out really quickly. So fraud and fraud detection has to happen lightning fast, right? Um, lightning fast for that to, to work. Historically, that's been quite difficult, particularly in complex fraud use cases. So insurance claims fraud, for example, is a really big one where you know, somebody goes in and says, hey, I've flooded my house. I need you to rebuild, you know, whatever it happens to be. There's a lot of different types of data that you would need to actually conduct that. So what ends up happening is, is you've got these sort of static models off to the side where someone says, mm, I think of that guy, Ben, not a digital twin Sullivan's a bit dodgy. I'm going to pull his case off the line as such. And we're going to investigate this one in a little bit more detail. We might try to collect a little bit more information about the, the claim that he's making might look into his background, you know, is he actually the criminal that he looks like or something like that, whatever it kind of happens to, to be. 
And then they'll put it back on the line if they determine that it's, it's not a fraud. Now, you think about that for a second. If you're the poor customer waiting for your house to get built, get, get fixed, and you happen to be completely legitimate, like most fraud investigations turn out finding, you sit there and you go, I'm really unhappy about this. I've, in fact, I'm not going to do my insurance with this provider anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. So the, the insurance provider, by trying to perform a legitimate function, ends up actually risking certainly reputation, but also customer loss at that point. If we enter the world of digital twins, what we can start to do now is realize that we've got a lot of data in our systems about our customer base, and we can actually twin the entire customer base and look at this and say, you know, who is most likely to conduct insurance fraud? Can we proactively intervene before we get to the point of a claim? You know, if this particular group of our customers is, is likely to be a problem, is there something that we can do about that before we get a, a claim in so that they're less likely to defraud things? So educational interventions. But even better than that, I mentioned the right back piece, that digital thread connecting the physical and the, the digital world. Rather than having to pull it off the line and conduct the detailed analysis, if all of the data is already going into a Twitter, we've already got the model built into the twin and we've got the ability to write back to the core systems, suddenly it just becomes part of a normal business process and it can happen at almost the same speed as everything else. And we can look at it incredibly quickly. The twin, the model can look at it incredibly quickly and say, no, this is completely fine. Feed it back into the next stage. Let's pay them. Let's get the house fixed. So on and so forth at that point. So yeah, you think about it better, Gabe. It's, it's got so much potential and so many different use cases. You just have to think about something that you try to do in the physical world mm -hmm. and see whether you can do it better in the digital world. Yeah. I mean, for me, I just love anything proactive that comes with technology. Yeah. You can take those examples and just actually stress test things or build in proactive measures to understand future yeah. states or implications. It's just such a great place to be. I'd love to know how much you see the business appetite into modeling that as well. And yep. I'm sure different business leaders and different risk appetites see it in different ways. So yeah. I'm sure there's always variance there. But Dirk, I'm of course wanting to go straight into the cyber context now. Absolutely. Which is, Three really key points that I'd love to hear from your perspective as it relates to cybersecurity implications of digital twins. So could you walk us through those? Yeah, for sure. And I guess uh, just to zoom out on, on the question and on digital twins to begin with, I mentioned they've been around for a while, but they've changed dramatically in that last five years or so due to cloud, due to AI, and, the and the, I guess the supercharging that that's given. As a result, I think of, I guess, the widespread uptake that's happened in, in recent years. You know, the ISO standard on this is still reasonably new and it's still quite manufacturing focused, by the way. So a lot of the things that we would expect to see when we're a cyber, as cybersecurity practitioners to go, okay, let's try to understand the model. A lot of that, like AI, is still really new and changing quite quickly, right? So I expect that what I tell you now will probably change within 12 months, 24 months, um, so on and so forth. Really the key though is, is trying to think about, you know, what the business is using that twin for, and if you're, a, if you're an attacker, if you're a bad guy, what would you do to, to try to um, intervene in there? Now, all of the research on this is all within the last two years. That's how new the research into cybersecurity implications of, of digital twins are. The first aspect though is, you know, we talk about, you know, we talk about what we just talked about there with, with banking, supply chains, another really big use case. The dollars involved in this stuff is 
absolutely massive. Now, historically, and Ben, you work at a at an OT firm. If you as an attacker wanted to go attack an, an industrial control system, number one, it might be a little bit hard. You know, people might debate how hard that actually is, but people tend to protect protect these systems reasonably well. They certainly should, and by legislation, they they should. Maybe if it's a digital twin, it's not it's not disconnected from the internet. It's not in you know, all of those kind of DMZs under the purge model that we talked about earlier, all of these things, it's actually out in a corporate network somewhere in a digital twin platform. Maybe it's easier just to attack the digital twin itself. So you think about it in terms of extortion. So extorting the twin, if I attack the twin and the twin is completely built into the, the target's uh, business processes, I've potentially taken that entire system offline without having had to go and actually take that entire system offline. I've probably avoided any risk of loss of life, any safety, so on and so forth, but I've still created the same effect, which means that I can extort the same amount of, of money, the same amount of uh, behaviors that I'm looking for out of, of potential targets. And you know, that first one there, that idea of attacking the twin to attack the, the business, I think that's something that we're going to start, start to see a lot more as we see twins get more and more integrated into businesses in every industry that we work in. The second one, I guess, is a little bit of a um, change of, of, or a little bit of a flavor of the, the first one. You know, we've all talked in cybersecurity about confident, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. The good old CIA triad for years and years and years. You know, everyone goes, hey, from a ransomware perspective, from a cybercrime perspective, most people seem to have been targeting the availability side of things, right? Uh, and confidentiality, but they've been going, Right, let's let's hit it, let's encrypt it, and let's ask for money to turn it back online. A lot of cyber professionals for a long time now have been saying, well, I'm more worried about them attacking the integrity of that data, right? Like if they undermine the integrity in my core ERP system, gosh, that, that's going to take me years to fix that problem. And I might not even know where that problem is. Same is true of digital twins. If I've got all of my organization's data coming into a digital twin, and then I'm using the, the complex near real-time modeling to make decisions and implement that into the physical world. What if somebody went in there and started to change data in the twin? We could actually create an effect within the business off the back of that. This idea of co-opting the twin or undermining the integrity of the data in the twin is another key area of attacks that the research is pointing to uh, certainly could come down range in the future. And the final piece really is, what if the bad guys started using twins? Now, if we build a digital twin ourselves, um, it's not unheard of that the bad guys would start to look at that as a way of building their own against us so that they could target us with it. One of the, the things about digital twins is you can simulate second or third order effects really, really well. So currently in, in terms of breach and attack simulation, I can say, hey, something is going to happen here. And if, if this particular piece of infrastructure within my network is attacked, it's probably going to affect this infrastructure, this application, yada, yada, yada. It's notoriously difficult to understand economic impacts though. Digital twins are actually really good at that. So we can simulate the attack and also understand exactly how much that's going to cost the target. That helps us to ask the target for more money potentially. So the idea of the evil twin using a twin against somebody sounds a little bit far-fetched, but there is already research out there um, and Dutch research actually. So you know, um, NATO-based research on using digital twins to support cyber targeting in warfare. Um, so 
the military is talking about it. We all know historically three to five years, cybercrime is also going to be talking about it. Absolutely. It's just unbelievable to me that the cybersecurity context for digital twins is only relatively new. Two years, in fact, Dirk, as you mentioned. Yep. So and you are, kudos to you being really early adopter and sort of shaping and really diving Makes deep sense. into this domain of technology. Super exciting. Yeah. And I'll have to connect you actually to one of my VC mates because only a couple of months ago, I sat down with him for breakfast and I'm like, cybersecurity is easy. Okay. Like, I know that everybody in the room. <laughs> But of course I was oversimplifying it and I said, just create a digital twin environment and do a breach tax simulation on it. And then you can build out all of the recommendations and findings. So Dirk, if you have any me to pitch in the market, just sub your girl on. I'm here for it. Oh, that's <laughs> what you're saying is accurate, right? Gabe, and there is, I mean, NIST has put out a paper on this recently with the University of Michigan, all about using digital twins for breach tax simulation, but also intrusion detection as well. So as, as um, we all know around the, particularly the industrial area, quite hard to put sensors out there to detect things, but you can put them yeah. into a twin. So you can actually run the detection offline as such, which is something that again, if NIST is looking into it, we're expecting to see that a lot more in the market over time, unless yeah, you're using yeah. Dragon. Very cool. Oh, yeah. Now that you mentioned it. Yeah. I don't want to go too far off the, the, uh, the, the cyber attack chain because I think there's some good points there. One is it sounds like digital twin is, uh, is a phenomenal use case for prehabilitation over rehabilitation uh, using that breach yep. attack simulation piece that uh, Gabe mentioned. I, I'm a big believer in prehab over rehab. Um, I think we're, I think we're uh, kidding ourselves if we don't think state-based actors use digital twins to to train before attacking or putting live attacks into environments. Um, you know, I, the, before with this episode doing some research, I was trying to find whether there was uh, documentation to support what Stuxnet was uh, as a good example. Surely, and being military, surely there was uh, some form of digital twin being built prior to uh, to that attack, but. I think it's it's going to become more prevalent if they aren't, then, then they certainly will become more prevalent in, in state-based attacks. But uh, even some of the privately funded groups, I, I can foresee that they would either target or they would build their own to support their uh, their attack vectors. And um, Stuxnet's a really good example. Um, you know, Stuxnet is, as again, most people will know, is quite famous attack. That's pre-digital twin era, right? So that actually mm. occurred before that 2010 number that I, I talked about, or certainly public digital twin mm. era. I, mean, the, I don't think anybody's ever been able to prove it publicly, but the, the supposition, the conclusion that a lot of the industry has come to is that rather than it necessarily being a digital twin, a lot of the research around Stuxnet was tested in the physical environment. Um, so collaboration between two nation states and actually testing it in a, um, you know, example nuclear plant that one of those nation states had and was able to operate. So you fast forward to now and you go, if that all happened again, how much faster might the development of Stuxnet have been? And you think of the effect of Stuxnet, if you could create that effect over and over and over and do it really, really quickly, it really illustrates the power of, of attackers. Um, but I did also just want to pick up on something that you both said there around attack chains and also, I guess, the idea of what the attackers might do with this. If you, if you go to MITRE now as the MITRE attack framework, 
it really doesn't mention digital twins, right? Even if you go to the ICS variant of MITRE and you look at the initial access area or even, in fact, any areas, it doesn't actually go into any detail about how somebody might use a digital twin to either gain that initial access to the lateral movement, so on and so forth. So I think, you know, that's just an example of just how new all of this actually is. What do MITRE for ICS is also quite new, right? So. I think that if we don't start to see that you know, digital twins and digital threads forming a part of some of those frameworks into the future, I think that's a prediction you could probably probably you know, take the VC friends there. You know, it's, it's, it's like because it's a it's a real threat. There's real research into it, but those industry frameworks that we all use to plan and conduct our defenses really don't reference it yet. Yeah, I think that that just goes to show how new or how. Um you know, at the bottom of that curve, this, this technology yeah. is right. It's just swinging in that balance before it starts taking off. And I heard a, a, you know, someone I look up to in the industry mention when they were talking about digital twins, again, in the research for this episode, rather than talking about, uh, living off the land as a, as a, as an attack vector, yep. digital twins have the potential to be leveraged as a learning off the land, uh, and then pivoting across into yep. that living in the land or off the land attack. Uh, so. When we talk about digital twins in the context of cybersecurity, the digital twin is perhaps only as successful for business value as it is the amount of love and support you put into it to make sure that it is as protected as the the production environment. Absolutely. You know, um, you've you've got some great lines today, Ben, I've got to say. Um, Prehab versus rehab and learning off the land. You you should trademark those. um, (laughs) It really, it it gives you, I think, it really creates an image for you, which is, is what we want to do in cyber, right? Like education is one thing, but actually getting people to have that emotional response and go, oh yeah, that's something that we, we really want to do. And I think the idea of learning off the land, the way that you, you put that there is, is incredibly valid. Really, that's the idea of an attacker, maybe building their own digital twin, but certainly leveraging your digital twin to understand again, that effect that they could create of supporting targeting, supporting the, what, you know, what payload they're going to draw up, all of these things. Dirk, I, I can't let this conversation go without saying what the first dark mode audience or network that has absolutely fangirled over Denism. But I have to say, you forgot your favorite one, Dirk, which is Ledgehammers. Ledgehammers. Oh, yeah. That, and, uh, you know, I guess for everybody out there, we were up emailing and chatting backwards, backwards and forwards. Gabe used the term ledgehammers, you know, legends, sledgehammers. I'm like, that is so good. It's like, can't take credit for it. That's one of Ben's. It's a Benism. I'm like, of course it's a Benism. We've been saying that for years and it, it, it brings a response. Normally the, the Dirk response of that was fantastic. Sometimes it just goes over people and they're like, oh, he mispronounced Sledgehammer, but uh, that didn't make sense. Didn't you ever oh, learn to small Ben? Come on. <laughs> um, I think the, the cyber implications of, of digital twins is uh, is a topic that we could all talk about forever. I, I wanted to, to pivot a little bit because Gay mentioned at the start and it wouldn't be uh, this era of dark mode without mentioning AI. Um, yeah. Surely there is some AI crossover into digital twin or Vicky Versa, right? hundred percent a better game. I think it's a, a really good pickup. You know, when it comes down to it, the idea of any data platform, right? Like if you go back to we're all cyber people, Splunk, the humble seam back in the day, that was all about creating correlation rules, creating static 
you know, if you see this, then put this event up. You had to do a lot of ETL, the old extract, um, extract transform and load. I'm seeing some chat on screen and getting distracted there. Well done, Gabe. Um, you, you know, if you, uh, <laughs> you I'm know, highly distractible. I always get that. You know, I'm sorry. All, all the ETL, all, all of these things were just part of operating a data platform in cybersecurity or anywhere else for that matter. One of the simplest developments, I think, uh, probably oversimplifying that of AI, but it's been around for a while is entity extraction. So being able to take unstructured data where you don't necessarily have metadata for every field or field titles and so on and so forth. And to be able to say, I'm now going to pull this out of a piece of free text that's maybe come off the back of a ERP system notes field, or you know, again, you name it, we can pull any form of data into this, pull free text out and say, this is this kind of data and build it into the model. That, that idea of entity extraction powered by natural language processing is a huge benefit for any data model, including digital twins. Similarly, it's the response piece as well. So, you know, when we start talking about the, the old world of data platforms, I talked about correlation rules there. The classic example was brute force attacks. You know, if I see 75 failed logons, that must be a brute force attack. In a cybersecurity context, 75 failed logons I don't really care about. The 76th successful logon is the one that I care about. So writing static correlation rules to pick these things up is really, really, really difficult. That industry at least is transformed by using AI to say, let's look at behaviors and what looks like an attack and what looks like an indicator of compromise or attack. And let's make sure that we build that in. Twins are a little bit similar, right? So the models don't need to be static, pre-coded and exactly the same every time anymore. We're able to use AI powered data platforms. And there's a couple out there. There's one that we use at Cognitio extensively called Palantir that are able to actually not only work with the, the data itself, so make the data ingest a little bit easier, but also have AI smarts built into the back of the models that run the simulations that power the decisions that go back into the core systems. It's, it's, it's a, my mind's just trying to wrap around what you've just described. So it, it takes a little bit of time to get through, but. Use early in the morning, Ben. I, I, yeah, I've only had one coffee this morning. Um, it, it seems like the, the, the implications of AI to digital twin haven't quite been realized yet. Uh, but the crossover or that, um, or that convergence piece will take digital twins to a whole nother level. I think it is already, Ben. It's, certainly it's early days, but I think it is already. Um, it's the powered by phenomenon, right? Like it's not, yeah. not like AI and digital twins are the same thing. They're, they're you know, fundamentally digital twins is a concept. It's a, it's a model, it's a framework, it's an idea. AI just makes it better. It lets you do more with it. It lets you be able to do stuff that historically may have been 400 lines of Python code. You can actually get a model to run that for you instead. Crazy. There's the blank face, Ben. I'm still trying to work out all. <laughs> I feel like we, we need a demo we, yeah, that, that is just going to take off. Like, yeah, if, uh, if, if, if digital twins aren't, aren't a, a revolution in itself and about to hit that, that uh, bell curve, as I mentioned, throwing AI behind it, that's just like throwing a rocket behind the, uh, the bell curve and it's just going to go like that. So I'm no, excited to see where, uh, where digital twin goes, especially when you can power it by AI. It, it, look, it's really interesting, isn't it? But I was listening to your last episode recently, which was all about AI and that executive advisory view of it. One of the points that your, your guest Theo made was, you know, no one really knows where it's going to go, right? He was talking about 
OpenAI's latest model, the, the QSTAR model, and kind of going, there's supposition about it. We all have ideas. We're all looking at it going, wouldn't it be cool if? But the, the technology is still so new and moving so fast that what we think about in 12 months and what we say could happen in the 12 months after that could be completely different to what we're thinking now, which as a decision maker, really, you have to change your way of thinking, right? Like you can't sit there and go, right, we're going to have a three-year project. And at the end of it, we're going to have something. You really have to embrace that modern way of doing things and say, let's get a single use case out the door quickly, the, you know, the perennial uh, minimum viable product. Let's do it and let's develop it to follow the most valuable thing of the organization. So use case one is good. Use case two is going to be better. Use case three is going to be better again. And then the technology will get better. So use case four will be even better still. Yeah, I love that, Dirk. That is absolutely modern competitive advantage too, in my eyes. It's just like the pace of change is yeah. at an unbelievable rate of acceleration right now. Dirk, the only, the only um, platform, I'm trying to think of platform technologies here to give the audience some kind of, uh, of reference point. The only one that, that I know of, uh, and because they, they released some fantastic blogs and I've got some friends that work there, is the, um, is the uh, Palantir Foundry platform. Yep. yep. Uh, I know that, that that plays a lot into uh, what Digital Twin is for some of the ecosystems in you know, the Weeball experience. Uh, are they the sort of technologies that help uh, provide that capability? Um, yeah. if, if you recommend using those sort of technologies? What's the difference between going for a... And I assume it's the same in most uh, technology decisions going for like an open source type project for digital yep. twinning or, you know, a Palantir Foundry type solution, or is there a mix between both that you'd recommend? Yeah. To, look, Ben, that, that is, that is you know, the biggest IT question of all time, right? Yeah. Is there a specific platform or should we open source or should we go build something, something ourselves? Um, you know, one of those things where I think a lot of it is about organizational context, um, yeah, you know, I'll come back to Foundry. The power of that platform is phenomenal and it's got a long heritage that helps it to be phenomenal. But again, if you look at it and you say, you know, if I'm an organization that's just embracing digital twin, if I'm right new into it and I want to deliver something tomorrow and my use case is really simple, there's plenty of organizations that have got value out of doing it in the, in the humble spreadsheet initially to build their business case to then go and build something more powerful like a Foundry-based solution. Now, Ben, Gabe, the reason why I guess we picked Foundry as one of the, the platforms that we support and one of the, the platforms that we're doubling down on as part of Cognitio is down to that long heritage that they have in this space. Um, you, know, you think about something that's been generated in the intelligence environment originally. It was um, the, the company itself was incubated out of uh, a venture capital firm called Incutel. That's one of the US intelligence communities, uh, I guess, mechanisms to get access to new technology. And since then, it's really evolved over time and it's really um, you know, cut its teeth as such, solving complex data problems on lots and lots and lots of different types of data in the intelligence world. You know, collected data that's very machine readable right through to text-based reports, through to video, through to images, so on and so forth. That heritage over years, years and years and years, that, that capability when Foundry was, was released, that was a completely rewritten product. They were able to bolt into the back of it a lot of that capability to understand data and make sense of data and then model data using what they call an ontology, which is you know, a really good word for a, a really clever model that just makes sense of lots of complicated data. So I guess they had a head start, which means that 
foundry that's now 18 months, two years old, kind of is leading the market in that sense in that they've, they've been doing, you know, whilst it's a new technology, they've been doing it for quite a long time. And what it's allowed them to do is to become the, the digital twins of twins, right? So I mentioned earlier that you had Siemens, GE, so on and so forth, releasing twins of the products that they sell. Well, what happens when you want to go out from a component digital twin out to a system digital twin? You know, when I want to actually go, well, there's 15, 20, 30, 40, a thousand different components, and I might have 10 different digital twins that I need to integrate. That's where something like Foundry comes in. And when I want to make it really complicated and go, not only do I want to have machine readable or, or IIoT data, but I also want to understand say the impact of weather on rail freight from doing supply chain, yeah, actually has a big impact as it does for shipping and for, um, for air freight as well. So Palantir lets you, uh, Foundry lets you bring all of that complicated data in and make sense of it so that you can make decisions off the back of it. I've just had like a proper uh, out-of-body experience as you were talking there, Dirk, about what the future could hold. Do you see a future where you can connect digital twins to it to appreciate the true third-party supply chain? That's a really, really, really innovative and interesting concept. But, yeah. Uh, you know, certainly when I say supply chain there, I'm talking physical supply chain. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Supply chain to create product, create services, get those to customers. But conceptually, and, and this is the cool thing about new technology, right? That could be another use case that could be built out. And I think, you know, I guess the conclusion out of that, as well as the fact that, like I mentioned, MITRE doesn't really talk about it. You know, we don't, we don't really know what a digital twin attack looks like. It's all research at this stage, right? What, whilst it's almost certainly happened, there's not too many public case studies of somebody going and attacking a digital twin. I think to your point about a new use case, as well as all of those other points, it's really is an area that. Companies like your own, companies like my own, and many others, we really need to start focusing on this so that we can start to build that body of knowledge and work out what is actually possible. Yeah, I think that's the other side of moment there. Let's do it, Dark Mode. Good moment. Good moment. Good moment. Yeah, <laughs> great question. Doug, if you're looking it's for uh, employee number five, I think Ben's your man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, David, you're right. Like maybe through the competition. I'm, happy. I'm very happy to battle it out. The old neuro training. <laughs> Neuro twin. My money's on Gabe. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you want a neuro twin or a not a digital twin? It's up to you. That's, that's, great, that's a great question. The ultimate. Um, I just think the possibilities are endless with digital twins, but um, I feel like there's there's potentially a bit of a series that we could run here, Gabe, on uh, on digital twins and, uh, so. and and harnessing the power of and and what the the uh, the opportunities are with digital twins. So. Yeah. Before we uh, give Dirk the floor, just to give us a bit more about um, Cognitio and, and bring this episode to uh, to a close, I, uh, I implore the audience to, to jump on as we post this over LinkedIn and, and YouTube and wherever else we post this these days, the Twitter feeds and, and the world's, um, excuse me, jump on there, put a comment in, let us know what your concept of digital twin is. Let us know what your opportunities are as you're going through. Did you have a moment like I did? Uh, is there something that, that you can throw out into the comments section to generate some of the conversation? Because we will have Dirk back and, uh, and we will be talking more about digital twins in the future because it's such a fascinating topic. So, um, so Dirk, just give us a bit more about Cognitio before we uh, bring this to a close and, and perhaps how the audience can reach you. And, uh, and for those yeah. that are 
you know, the CIOs and the, the CTOs, the CSOs of the, the community of the world that might want to reach out and, uh, and touch base with you about what digital and how they can leverage that in their environments is. Yeah, for sure, Ben. Look, thanks for the opportunity to do that. As a, as a new business, it really mean, means a lot. Cobicio was born out of, out of an idea, really. Yeah. A, a former colleague from Accenture and I, we were literally talking about it going, you know what? There is so much cool data platform technology out there. We're, we're talking digital twins today. Your last episode, you talked about AI and that, that's really just the beginning, right? There's so much cool data platform technology out there. Who's really looking at the security of all of that? And I don't mean in terms of DLP or anything like that. I mean, in terms of system level security so that we can actually convince customers that it's okay to let your service provider, let your company, let, let anything else actually generate these models, these capabilities to deliver value to you. So the idea really was let's get the best of technology when it comes to data and make sure that we can secure it as well. It just so happened also that, you know, my background is cybersecurity, I'm completely against my will. My very first job in the air force was, I was then called the defense signals director. And I've been a bit of cyber nerd ever since. Um, my uh, co-founder's background is in data platforms, originally in supply chain, all the way through to modern data platforms like Palantir, like Google and everything in between as well. So between the two of us, uh, we really thought that this is an area that not only is a growth area, we wanted to be a part of that. We think it's a real problem that industry needs to solve, right? We're going to hit a, a threshold, a ceiling really quickly with all of these data platform capabilities. If we can't convince customers that it, it's okay and that it's secure and that it is actually safe to put their data into these platforms as well. Hence, we came up with Cognitio. We're now three months old, three months and two days. In fact, and we've been working with a number of really interesting organizations, a few defense organizations, right through to some of the other industries that we talked about there as well with things like insurance and banking as well. So early days, but really, really exciting. A lot of fun, a lot of learnings for myself and Tony, the other co-founder where historically we've done a long time in the rigor and the, I guess, the capability of big organizations. We try to bring that to Cognitio as well as just do it a bit differently, basically. Amazing, Dirk. I'm personally very, very excited for you. And I think you sort of hit the market at brilliant at a brilliant time as well. So many big megatrends kicking off, particularly in AI. I think really like a social consciousness around really that true value of what technology does bring to business outcomes as well and those imperatives. And personally, I knew this would be a great conversation, but I've really, really enjoyed your insights as well and your domain expertise and just the passion for it too. So anyone within the dark mode community or I'm going to get around amplifying on the socials and you know, we love a good bit of LinkedIn banter. So I'm of course very That's excited when, when it hits the socials, but yeah, all the best with the endeavors. I'm pretty keen to keep an eye on how things do progress and we might even get you back in 2024 with our sort of mega theme episodes each month. And, uh, thanks, thanks yeah. David. I, I gotta say, um, you know, thanks, thanks both of you for your, your time on, on dark mode. Um, I listen to your podcast a lot. It's fantastic. I, I love the banter that you, you both have and your guests are pretty okay as well. Most of the time, asking <laughs> guests, I don't know where you get them, get them all, but you know, I think you, you've really generated something different in the Australian cyber podcasting seen and it's an absolute pleasure to be a part of it. Thanks, Dirk. We really appreciate that as well. It's been awesome. All right. Amazing.
Great episode, Thanks, team. Mark. Thank you for listening. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe. Hit all those things you know what to do. I appreciate you all. Yeah, and lastly, just like Ben said, happy Christmas and Merry New Year. <laughs>